This is The Real Good Podcast. My name is John Roebuck. With me is Derek Oscar Bate Armstrong. That's me. And Blake Best Sound Mixing Curtis. You love me. You really love me. No, I don't. (laughs) This episode is called It's a Wonderful Night for a Moonlight, and that's because we'll be talking about Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. Moonlight is the frontrunner for the 2017 Academy Awards, which will be held later this month, and it's received universal acclaim from critics and audiences. But it's time now for the three definitive opinions. I'm going to hand roll over to you, Derek. Uh, what do you think? Why do I always have to go first? Mm-hmm. No, do um, you always go first? Uh, I, I don't know. I'll well, stop know. complaining. I'll stop complaining. <laughs> um, I fell in love with this movie right at the start, and... Unfortunately, uh, it was a, a experience of falling slightly less out of love with it over the course of watching it, but still being pretty much in love with it at the end. Um, so I guess uh, I guess I should say from the start that we're gonna we're gonna talk spoilers here as we always do, and uh, hopefully a number of you out there have gotten to see it already. But one of the reasons I fell in love with it right away was Maher. Sh- um, I knew I was gonna mess it up. I've got it. Maher Shali Ali. Ma- I wrote it down. Maher Shala Ali, <laughs> who is the first character you see in the film. The tracking shot follows him to go meet um, uh, an acquaintance on the corner, let's just say. And there's something so magnetic about that man. Um, I just, his performance is absolutely terrific. I love the, the portrayal of his character. And he's only in the first one. Mm. And I think... The first one, have we said the that first, it's episodic? It's an episodic film about the, gay, uh, the life of a, a gay um, black kid in Florida. And... He's this father figure to the kid, Chiron, who's called Little in the first chapter, Chiron in the middle chapter, and Black in the last chapter. And um, he's the standout part of the of the film for me, and he's only in the first chapter. So um, I'm not making a very coherent discussion of my uh, my feelings here. The long and the short of it is I really like the film a lot. I think it's great. Um, but it loses some impact for me as it goes along, and that ultimately leaves me a little less high on it as I could have been. Well, it's a pretty common problem, I think, with episodic films is that some episodes are going to be worse yep. than others, and some are going to be better. And I think, depending on how you feel about the film, the first one is, I think, the most immediately strongest one. It's the most obviously strong one. Do you all agree with that? Do you agree with that, Blake? About the... The dif- first episode? Being the strongest one? Yes. Uh, no, I disagree. I think the, okay. the third one was the strongest for me. Okay. Um... And I, I, I think it's interesting, like, talking about that episodic kind of structure. Um, I think it's obviously... In, I think in this film it's really relevant because I think it's about, obviously, a, a, a boy trying to figure out who he is. Yeah. And his idea of trying to find his own identity and the idea that each one of those chapters was labelled a different identity and him trying to figure out where he fits in that whole idea. Um, for me, it was interesting. This film had an effect on me that not many other films have had, but I must admit the films that have had this effect are as an elite company. The ones that I see and I don't know what I think about it when it finishes. Like the credits roll and I just have to sit there and let it wash over me. The last film that did that to me was Anomalisa. And then before that, it was Dunce and Checks In. (laughs) (laughs) And Ernest... Operation Dumbo Drop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, and it, it... I don't know what it is, but it's trying to, I guess, trying to comprehend a life like living like that, that's Mm -hmm. so alien to my own existence and alien to any ideas of, 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 of racism or homophobia that I've never had to experience in my own life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's why it takes me so long to, to do that because these films are so powerful that, um, 
they present me, and especially with this one, they present you with an entire life. Even though the film goes for two hours or whatever it goes for, it feels like the way they've done it is it's this guy's entire life. And and it's interesting what you say about the third act being uh, your favourite because um, I think when I was watching the film, I found it, like you, Derek, the weakest. And the more I thought about it, I thought um, uh, that... Uh, maybe the 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 weak things I thought were weaknesses were actually strengths and it reminded me in a way a bit of um, boyhood which was sort of a, this mm. sprawling film and not everything um it, it, it wasn't a tight narrative but I think um uh, it was after these sort of um uh truths or uh, that um about life it was more it was it was more involved in ex- uh exploring truths in life than uh, getting these um narrative beats yeah and uh I think the third act reflected that it didn't wrap everything up. It was sort of meandering. It, it, it was very slow. It was this awkward conversation between these two guys and it was less immediately entertaining. But I think for the point that, uh, uh, Barry Jenkins, the director was trying to make, I think that the third film on reflection for me was a strength. Yeah. I, I, I had, didn't piece that together about boyhood, but I think you're spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now having you, you said that, you, you're 100% right. It, it just it, There's something about real life it, that It's the imperfections of it are actually yeah, assets. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's, I think you really feel yourself immersed in this world. I mean, let's talk about the visual approach that Jenkins takes to this film. The camera work is absolutely astonishing in this film. Frequently traveling around the characters, catching them from multiple sides and circling around them and just... I felt such a sense of, uh, of place and that this was a real lived-in world and that these were real... All of these characters have such dimension. Um, I really, and that's and that's what um, drew me to Juan, who's played by Maharshala Ali, um, the the drug dealer with the heart of gold, which is a kind of a character type you would expect. So if you would expect two character types about a drug dealer, it's an asshole, um, a user who takes advantage of people and is violent, or you expect someone who surprisingly has a heart of gold. Mm. This was the second, but in a way that I felt I hadn't seen before. Like he well, really didn't need to. To adopt this this child, but it was part, it was some it was some yearning in him. Well, I don't think either yeah. the story nor the characters were particularly um, revolutionary. I think they were quite simple, but it wasn't sort of. Um uh, what's important here is the execution of those characters and the execution of those stories. There's so many films about mm. the uh, repercussions of growing up in a counterproductive environment, right? Um, and uh, uh, and w- sort of what happened in the film isn't yeah. particularly innovative. Well, but how Jenkins puts it all together is. I completely agree, and that's what I was going to say, uh, very much from the the way the actors played the part as well, because I remember when I, obviously when you meet Little at the start and he's this shy little boy who's being bullied, mm-hmm. I was like, his home life is fucked. Mm-hmm. And I thought that the whole time, and that was even before he went And home. then you meet his mother. And, but then, but, but, well, that's, but <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's what's so interesting, is when I met his mother for the first time, I went in with the idea that she was going to look like a junkie that I recognised. Mm-hmm. And when she rocks up in her work uniform and yeah. she looked, she doesn't really look like a junkie no. at the start, I was like, oh my God, I've completely misread this. And then what Jenkins has done and what the actors have done is actually d- done what I expected it but shifted it slightly and made those people a lot realer. It's well, not an archetype of what those characters are. And I think, uh, like I said, there's been a lot of films about how growing up in these neighbourhoods um, can uh, uh, beget violence and make a certain way of life inescapable. But I also think with uh, Moonlight, it, there's a, quite an insular aspect because it explores sort of um, growing up in, what growing up in an, an environment like that to, can do to a person's soul and not just how it affects their actions. And with each chapter, um, uh, Ch- Chiron? Uh, what was he? Chiron. Chiron, sorry, yeah. yeah. 
um, he develops in terms of how he's able to interact or unable to interact with the world mm. and how um, he becomes more isolated. Yeah. And that was something I haven't seen in regards to this. And each, he, be, he becomes increasingly isolated, which is a universal feeling. I mean, yeah. I can't empathise with... Um, with what it's like to grow up in in uh, an environment like that, but I can empathise with isolation, perhaps not so much as Chiron or Chiron. Yeah. Um, but I think you know um, I can in, in general, and I think uh, Moonlight does a great job at that sort of conveying the impact that uh, not feeling okay with being yourself can do to a person. Exactly. Yeah. And the flip side of that coin as well, which I think is incredible, is you can understand because of the way that you, everything that you've just spoken about, about that isolation and understanding that isolation, you can understand how that moment on the beach can mean everything to him because he yeah. is living in this isolated world and he is not able to connect with anyone. So any moment where he does have that human connection, it means the world to him. And being, a, yeah. being gay would be like a, can be such a struggle for people who aren't living in, in, a, in a neighborhood like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, it's really, uh, he's living in a world of uh, prisons in terms of his environment, but also himself. Mm, exactly. And that's why that, even the way they shot that beach scene, even when I was watching it, it felt like a memory. It was a ma- it was like magical it, realism it was almost. Beautiful. Yeah, like the, you could see. Like, him that's where the title comes in too. Yeah. Moonlight. Yeah, you can remember. You could see him remembering what the sand felt like. You could see him have playing that memory over and over in his head mm-hmm. for years to come. And the touch, everything was just spectacular. About so that I guess uh, the part of the reason why I wasn't in love with the third one may have something to do with those narrative beats that you were talking about before, um, and expecting a certain thing to happen after a certain other thing happens. So the end of Act 2, when he breaks the chair over the back of the bully and gets taken to prison, and do you think that the bully dies in that scene? He's no. not killed by no, that, is he? No, no. So. okay. Yeah. I thought there was some suggestion that because that, that it was such a violent act that that was what happened, and that's why he has to, he's basically spends some time in prison. After that, I felt like that was a moment of self-actualization for him, where he was kind of going to take control of his persona and say, this is who I am. And so, so then... There's this weird disconnect for me where in the third act it's discovered over the course of of the scene that he has never again um, had sexual relations with a man. And I guess I kind of felt that that moment of self-actualization would lead to this sense of self where he said, I'm going to own this. This is me. Um, I'm a homosexual man and I'm going to go pursue the things that bring me gratif- gratification. And you can see that in the form of him becoming a gangster, you know, and he's got, he's got the teeth, he's got, he drives the wheels. I love that shot of, of him driving from the, from the, the door of the car where, where it gets that, those great angles in there. It's a real, it's a real sense of empowerment. And then it's revealed that, no, he just, he's been essentially celibate since this in 10 years or whatever. And it, Something about that struck me the wrong way as as not how this character would have would have really blossomed. And I think that that is probably a different take than almost anyone has on that. Oh, yeah. So I'm kind of curious to see if you think... becoming a gangster or not pursuing no, men? the fact that, yeah. So I think most people think that, yes, this is something that would happen. He would retreat within himself. He would feel the shame of that, of, you know, being identified as a homosexual and internalize it and never do that again. For me, I felt like it was the opposite. He had this moment, he sunk his face in the ice, he walked into the school, he, he attacked the bully, and it was a start of a new chapter for him where he was going to define his own yeah. persona. And I guess something about the fact that he then had never had relations with a man again felt like a, a inconsistent with that. And and I, I, I suspect I'm wrong about that, but that was yeah. my take on it. Well, yeah, for me it was more him shutting himself off from the world. 
um, just completely isolating himself even further. Um, but he's but he's obviously had some kind of um, integration socially with the life that's necessary in order to to start a drug empire. I mean, I don't want to say he's the head of a drug empire. It's hard. It's hard to tell exactly what level he is. But he's obviously not the lowest level. He's mm-hmm. a is a person with power, and. So that in itself does not involve isolation. That involves integration in some kind of um, greater system. Yeah, but it also creates a system where you can, like the whole drug system is protecting yourself so that no one's ever able to catch you. Right. You know what I mean? Like the whole concept, if you you look at it from like, and there's never any police in this film, but the whole concept from from the drug empire is that no one can ever pin it on me. You're always shifting and moving and... and yeah. keeping things going and and that's convenient for him because it means that he doesn't ever have to confront who he really is to anyone yeah and sure he uses it as a form of protection um and that's why the, the 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 third act was so powerful for me because my take on it was i was watching that 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 third act and was just like is he going to kill him is he going to kill kevin oh and i never that thought was, that yeah. that was hanging over my mm. head the entire All right. third act, and my sister, who I watched, would have had the same impression. I think we were just on edge the whole time. Now, here's here's where hearing some stuff about it in advance probably prevented me from thinking that because I knew that it was a low key film, and I knew that it wasn't going to end in some kind of um, tra- some kind of epi- uh, epic tragedy type moment. Well, but yeah, I think that- the end of the second act left you wanting you to think that because yeah. breaks the chair on the bully's back. Kevin's just beat the shit out of him, and he looks at him from outside the police yeah. window. It's interesting, and so it creates this animosity potentially between yeah. them. It's interesting what you say about having heard uh, things about it before, because I um, knew very little about it. Yeah. Uh, one of the few films uh, uh, that I knew uh, didn't know much about before going in, and so I didn't know it was episodic. I didn't know um, that the, oh, the, the okay. first episode would finish, and he'd, he'd you know it had come to when he was an older man. So if you haven't seen this, I'm sorry, I'm ruining it for you. And I, I already gave our spoiler warning. I yeah. tried to avoid, um, uh, writing too much about the episodic, um, nature of it in my review, or maybe I, maybe I did ruin it. Um, but it was a, when I was watching it, I was really grateful that I didn't know much about it. Sure. Yeah. Me yeah. too. Me too. And I actually thought that midway through, through seeing the film is that I was annoyed that I'd actually seen the trailer because it's, it creates expectations it, it, and it, ideas. It's weird about the, the the third act, which I feel like is the most contentious uh, here. here. Um, so superficially, I feel like my main problem was it, with it was it was just two awkward men having a very awkward conversation for quite a long time, which doesn't make for gripping cinema. Mm-hmm. But then, like I said, when I left the cinema, I still didn't think it was the strongest episode, but I, I felt like within the context of what Barry Jenkins was trying to convey, it was a strength. Yeah. Uh, whereas at the time, you know, I mean, hey, a, a conversation between two men who uh, are uncomfortable around one another and a lot of the conversation was, was like was them just being awkward with one another, it doesn't make for immediately compelling cinema. Yeah. Well, I guess the other thing I thought was, I guess I felt a little bit uncertain about the, this Kevin character being a little bit key to his salvation in a way or key to this moment he needs to have because basically this is a kid who yeah who was gay also obviously was slash is gay uh, he's married now isn't he Kevin to a, yeah. to a woman I believe yeah. uh, are they married though well he, in any case I think it's it's, 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 it's yeah. suggested that he's now identifies as heterosexual really so, so I felt but, like it, uh, I felt like that was ambiguous I, okay I, to, yeah. to, to me it, were, it could have been just um, uh, he happened to have a kid 
Yeah. But well, so in any case, I didn't I didn't know if I felt that because this is a kid who, you know, in a, in, a, in a fairly traditional scenario that you, we said that this film has some traditional scenarios, you're betrayed by the person that you love for social reasons of, of you know, bullying and um, and, you know, uh, someone else is is egging you on to do something that I, I didn't see that his that he needed to have that moment with that character to resolve something because that character essentially they had one they they had one this one experience they didn't have like an ongoing relationship yeah. um it was it was a betrayal but it was kind of it was a betrayal of like well someone you'd had one date with effectively and so i didn't feel like 10 years later he'd be he'd still be hanging on that that all that said i don't know how i would have ended the film differently and yeah. i think that the ending is quite powerful in a lot of ways i just found that the episodes were decreasingly powerful by small enough by a small margin but by enough of a margin that that the way I felt about it at the beginning was not the way I felt about it. Well, at the I think end. Maher, like you say, Maher Shalali's performance oh, is so strong he's in so the great. first act that um, uh, even though the performances that follow it are also strong, they pale in comparison. Well, know? the other thing is, so Naomi Harris, she's the other standout. I think I think all three actors who play Sharon are really strong, but I think Naomi Harris and Maher Shalali, who are the two that got nominated for Oscars, are the standouts. Naomi here. Harris is awesome. She's good in everything. I've she's, seen she's she's great. She's, she's in Bond good too. In yeah. Collateral Beauty, which is an <laughs> early contender for worst film of 2017. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, no, I, I think she's terrific. But I also was a little bit disappointed in the way that her character resolves in this. That was the group most. Home. That was the most awkward scene for me. Yeah, in it, the whole film, it, it just didn't fit. It felt too neat or something. Well, I just don't know why they were having that conversation at that point in time. Yeah, it just seemed to come out of nowhere. It's like we've we've caught up with these characters again, so we have to get her in there. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Whereas. In terms of the other stuff, I feel slightly different because I feel like um, when you're talking about like the idea of going on a date and only it's one date, for me, I think it's complete. Like for us, that's how I would see it. But I think the intention was to create this isolated world where this kid was alone. Like he didn't mm-hmm. have anyone. He had a mum who was not really there, barely there, and she was dealing with her own issues of being alone and losing her son to Teresa, which is the other female character. Another great performance, which Janelle Monáe. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so, for me, one date for me it was everything. You know what I mean? It was just like that kid. It was like his one shining light in this fucking shit world that he's lived in forever. Can I ask you guys? And I know I'm sort of more involved in this part of film than perhaps you guys are. What did you think of the music yeah. and Barry Jenkins's choice, or like? Uh, his decision to uh, employ the uh, uh, Nicholas Brittle, who wrote the score. What did you think of the use of music in the film? Uh, I thought it was terrific. Yeah. Like I thought it was so involving. Yeah. It was such a huge but, array too. If you think, do you guys remember the the song that started the film? Nigger, no. Niggers be king, or each nigger's a king, or whatever it said at the very start, and he's driving down the uh, road. And that's okay. the, that's the film I think that he plays on the jukebox at the end as well. Yeah, perhaps. yeah. Oh no, that's uh, the um, that's the Aretha Franklin. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you're right. That's yeah. the Aretha Franklin song. But, but I thought it was fantastic. But yeah. I also think um, the fact. I mean, like I was saying, there are a lot of films that um, explore the repercussions of growing up um, in, in places like that, and the the lack of opportunity in that sort of um, insular, um, circular um, way those neighbourhoods would uh, would uh, operate. And um, I think not using uh, hip-hop music was a strength of... But they did. No, they did a little bit. Hmm. But, but the score was very, very classically, classically influenced, which yeah. um, is, I think really lent the film a, uh, a, a very unique... The piece that I remember the most was that sinister music that plays... During that recurring shot, 
where he sees his mother at the end of that hallway or is he looking at her at the other mm, side of the house which apparently and she was screams. A, it was a last-minute decision they yeah. just yeah. decided to do that. at the Those shots or that, that movie? That, that, that shot. That, yeah. yeah. There's something about that shot that's so um, confronting. And I also and the music that played with it, I remember being really sinister. So I don't... I actually <laughs> threw it on YouTube earlier today to familiarize myself with the score just so I could comment about it um, here tonight. Great. And then I just didn't get a chance to listen to very much before oh. I got caught. I've been listening else, to the score yeah. since I heard yeah. it. So I, I saw the movie maybe, oh God, it's going on a month ago now. Yeah. And uh, I've been listening to the score nonstop. It's, I think it's a, a, um, one of the best scores uh, in recent memory. What do you think of the, I'm uh, oh, sorry. You... No, that's all right. I was just going to say, see, the, the, the other thing I think that we haven't touched on as well, which I think is really important to, to discuss with this film, um, which was a really strong theme that I got from the film, is that these people are being left behind. Yeah. And not, not necessarily just um, little um, but also, uh, you know, all the older characters in that film, like the, the 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 drug dealer at the start, like we talked about him having a heart of gold. But as you said, it's such a the 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 pattern of that neighborhood is so insular. Like, what 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 are the other choices? Even the, the Kevin character at the end, he talks about the fact that he went to prison and then he's now a, a, a cook. And I think that was one of the main themes that he had is that because these people are not getting the, the I don't know the not the life they deserve, but because of the world that's been created mm-hmm. and it's really hard to break apart and change. It's just a cycle. And he becomes the the character at the start. He becomes mm-hmm. the drug lead dealer. Well, for some reason, and I think I've mentioned this in my review, it reminded me, it's a tenuous link of that line at the start of The Departed, um, Martin Scorsese movie, when Jack Nicholson says, I don't want to be a product of my environment. Mm-hmm. I want to be a, uh, my environment to be a product of me. Mm-hmm. And sort of both things end up happening to this guy. Yeah. He's a product of his environment. And as a result, his environment becomes a product of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of being left behind, um, what do you think of the decision to to show off to not show and to just refer briefly off screen to the death of Juan? Oh, I thought it was fantastic. Um, but it's he's left behind in a rather literal way. I, I thought the way yeah. they did it was forced, but I. Well, it's kind of like the boy, boyhood, like you're referring to, like these these big moments are the ones that you don't necessarily see. Yeah. It's the small moments you are seeing. And then, but, and then yeah. the story was very much about well, because the story is little story, and I thought that was really nice to, because. I was in his world. I was in this isolated place with him and it sucked. And I think uh, stimulus like that, even though it's a big scene, mm. it's not relevant to, to the isolation that they're trying to... And his last moment show. on screen then is that is that realisation that he has contributed to this, the... the uh, downfall of this guy's this kid's mother, but I love his line before that about his honest his honest response to well, faggot is what it, is what people use to make gay people feel bad. That, that's a great scene because yeah. it's both uh, characters feeling awful about themselves when they perhaps shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. But what they're doing when that when they when they they they're feeling like bad people uh, when. They sh- they shouldn't be feeling that way. Yeah. yeah. We've got to move on. Um. Oh, but we'll get back to Moonlight. I want to uh, get onto our top three, and I'm going to let you explain it, Derek. Okay. So the top three this week is the the best performances by multiple actors playing the same role in the same film, which was my idea. And I, as soon as I suggested it, I thought yeah, arrogant is getting. <laughs> I'm never going to find anything for this. <laughs> and how how am I going to find anything for this? And then I found too many examples. So I actually have a couple honorable mentions, but I'll leave them in case they're part of your main mention main uh, mention. But I wanted to mention one honorable mention, just and you'll see why in a minute. It's the characters uh, played by um, uh, Frank Wally and Burt Lancaster in Field of Dreams. 
uh, as a young and old <laughs> baseball player. And the reason why that's an honorable mention is his name is Archibald Moonlight Graham. Uh, <laughs> you're getting, yep. too, getting yep. too clever for yep. Get a haircut. So, so, uh, so anyway, I'll move on here. Get a haircut. Yeah. <laughs> my hair's a bit poofy at the moment. No, it's fine. So, um, so my number. Th- so, so I've selected out of a lot of choices. I've selected some some kind of interesting, um, uh, obscure choices here. Um, the first is a film called Woman in Gold from a few years ago, um, which I really cared, liked a lot, which a lot of other people maybe didn't like quite as much as I did. But Tatiana Maslany and Helen Mirren both play a character named Maria Altman, who is um, a German woman who uh, emigrated to the United States um, shortly uh, after World War II or during World War II. Um, and her family's um, artwork was was stolen by the Nazis. And this is her uh, story of trying to reclaim it as an adult. And um, Helen Mirren is of course, always great. But Tatiana Maslany, who is the star of um, Orphan Black and who plays multiple different roles on that, she just kills it as the young version of this. And she she really gets to um, to a lot of emotional places that just really moved me. So I wanted to, to add that there. The second one is one that's in current release. And I figured since it's an Australian film, we should, uh, we should talk about it a little bit, which is Lion. Yeah. Um, Come on, the Aussie. <laughs> <laughs> the Garth Davis film, which is now nominated for Best Picture. Do you know um, our mates work in the same office as Garth Davis? Uh, I think I'd heard something like that. Well, yeah. not specifically that I heard that there was a connection though. Yeah. Yeah. I watched Stranger Things in Garth Davis' house. So but he um, wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> you broke in. In fact, no, <laughs> so Dev Patel got nominated for an Oscar, but the be- the better performance is by the child actor Sonny Pawar, mm. who holds the first thirty minutes of the film as the young Saru Brierly. And boy, is that a great child performance! Yeah, I haven't seen fantastic. one like that in a long time, and I just mm. thought that had to get a mention here. And my number one is actually Cinema Paradiso from nineteen eighty eight, the Giuseppe uh, Giuseppe Tornatore film, where three different characters play actors play uh, Toto De Vita, and it's a film about a filmmaker an Italian filmmaker looking back on his childhood in Italy and about the movie house where he was growing up. I and, love that film. And yeah, and the, and the the adult actor is not in it very much, but his he has a powerhouse scene and it mm. brings it all home at the end. And without the other two performances of the other two actors, it's not possible. Another yeah. good score from Ani Morricone. Blakey, your top three. Uh, my number th- three is, um, I'll do the character's name. So Alan Parrish, which is played by <laughs> Adam ha- um, Han Bird and Robin Williams in Jumanji. I don't know why, but when I, I always think about that that movie. and Jumanji. Yeah, there's something about that kid who just, I don't know, when I, he did all the emotional work for me at the start because he's the bully. He's the one who has a terrible relationship with his dad. And then Robin Williams just takes it and runs with it. And then when it goes back to the kid, I always remember him licking his, you know, licking his blood lip that he's got. Um, and just the celebration and to be back there um, in with his dad, it's just such pure relation. Haven't seen it in a while. Saying, oh, <laughs> it's one of my childhood yeah, like, favorites. The only time I like Robin Williams. Yeah. <laughs> my number two is obviously um, Nicolas Cage and John Travolta playing obviously. Face That Off. was on my list. <laughs> that was on my short list also. <laughs> I love Face Off. It's I'm one of my, I, do, I do too. It is one of my favorite films. I do too. And it, Needs to get a mention, and I just don't know how they actually did that in that day and age, taking the faces off each other. It was really it, impressive. Science yeah, is, is never going to achieve that high oh, again. It's been downhill since then. And number one is uh, Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro playing Don Corleone in uh, the Godfather series. He that both of them picked up an Oscar and sensational. Like when mm-hmm. Robert De Niro goes, "I'll make him an offer he can't refuse." I had goosebumps. It's just awesome. <laughs> Robert sure. De Niro is so good in the uh, I've, I hate all of my three and I'm sorry guys I like uh, did a bit of research when I couldn't think of any and I'm not happy with any of these 
Um, my number three is Ian Holm and Martin Freeman in The Hobbit. And mm. I don't like any of The Hobbit movies and I'm not huge on the second two Lord of the Rings, but I actually think Ian Holm and Martin Freeman are strengths in both of those. Martin yeah. Freeman's one of the few really great parts of The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, my second uh, one is just because there's so many of them is Johnny Depp, Heath Ledger, Colin Farrell and Jude Law. Oh, the imaginary yeah. Of yeah. Dr. Parnassus. I thought of that one. <laughs> After Heath Ledger died, um, uh, Johnny Depp, Colin Farrell and Jude Law all stepped in to fill the role. And I think they gave all their money to Heath Ledger's daughter or yeah. something. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And my number one, just because it's Indiana Jones, is Indiana Jones and River, uh, sorry, Harrison Ford and River Phoenix and yep. Indiana Jones on the Last Crusade. I forgot it was River Phoenix. Now, quickly before we move on to our last thoughts of uh, Moonlight, for the very first time, we actually have fan mail. We've got a <laughs> question we've been emailed in. I'm going to read the question out. Hi, Real Good Podcast Trio. I'm your biggest fan, biggest in inverted commas. I thought I'd write in with two questions that have been plaguing me for some time in the hope that you guys could clear it up for me. Then there's a winky face uh, tongue out emoticon. (laughs) Firstly, what famous on-screen trio would you compare yourselves to and why? Secondly, I have this weird pimple on my back and I can't figure out what it is. (laughs) What is my pimple? Regards, Dr. Alex Katsugas of North Fitzroy. (laughs) Surely the good, the bad and the ugly. Oh, I thought the good, the bad and the ugly too. But I am, I want to go with the ugly. I'm happy being I'd go with you as the ugly too. What about about three amigos? (laughs) We're not that good friends. Come on. Um, We might be amigos though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As uh, as for the pimple, you'll have to go check it out. I think it's a piece of chocolate. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, before we, uh, we wrap up, uh, Blakey, what are your final thoughts on Moonlight? Well, the only other thing that we haven't really mentioned that I just want to give a quick mention to is the scene when he's teaching him to swim. That's yeah. an uh, yep. absolutely beautiful scene. Um, and in real life, apparently the actors, he was teaching, was teaching him to swim. He was yeah. teaching him to nice. swim. Nice. Which nice. I think is just really Method beautiful. acting. It's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Derek. Nice. Well, I'll just get in those two honorable mentions that I mentioned before. Looper, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis. Love and Mercy, John Cusack, and Paul Dano. Mate, I um, asked you for your final thoughts on Moonlight. We don't care about your list. I got to get my honorable mentions in. Moonlight, okay, so I like Moonlight a little bit less than La La Land, but I'm rooting for, for Moonlight to win Best Picture in the same way that I liked Birdman a little bit better than Boyhood a few years ago, but was rooting for Boyhood. I think Moonlight winning Best Picture would say more about what I want the uh, movie industry to be right now. I think yeah. they will as well. I think Moonlight will take it. And I think, uh, what do I think about Moonlight? I think it uh, does... The thing I loved most about it was um, how well it conveyed how your environment is a product of who you become. And I, I mean that more in an uh, insular way. There's been lots of films, like I said, about you know uh, people taking certain actions as a, as a result of their environment. But uh, the progression of um, uh, Chiron's personality or, or degression... Is degression a word? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think it was uh, yeah very moving. Yeah, I Indeed, agree. indeed. And moving film. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's interesting that it's come out at the same time as La La Land because Moonlight made me understand that like there's a lot of people that wouldn't have been given the chances that the people, because of their colour and who they are, wouldn't have been given the chances that the dreams they could aspire to that they do in La La Land. Mm. The, the messed up thing about films like Moonlight is I feel like the people who are watching it are these privileged people. Who like There are some movies you watch and, and you feel sort of a bit... I, uncomfortable watching them because we have been I'm not really afford- qualified to yeah, discuss we it. have yeah, been exactly. afforded these I mean like we're like you know uh, we're comfortable in our lives yeah. and we don't have to go through the things that these people do but yeah that's a very good point anyway, uh, we may as well finish on a low note yeah. this yeah. has been the real good podcast thank you Blakey you're welcome and thank you Derek I'll be here again next time uh yeah, well, we'll need you to be. Uh, <laughs> my name's John Roebuck. This has been The Real Good Podcast. For more information, go to the greatest film website of all time, realgood.com.au. That's real with two E's because we're clever. See you next time. Later. 
Say goodbye, Blakey. Bye, Blakey.